0: Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 this evening. We'll spend a moment or two uh, together in God's Word. And by the way, a moment or two, that's preacher talk for about 20 minutes, so just to let you know uh, what we're planning to do. I trust God is going to bless us as we uh, consider His Word. I believe it to be the Word of God, and I believe God still speaks through it. And so I'm excited to consider this Word with you. So you might f- find your, t- your time. Uh, aided, if you have God's word open, to Matthew chapter 1. I was out in the foyer uh, before the service this evening, and uh, someone asked me, uh, are, are you ready for Christmas? Right? As, if, as if there's in, uh, an ability to do anything about it, right? I mean, I, I think the stores are closed. I don't know. Maybe they're still open, but I'm pretty sure they are. Have you been asked that uh, this year? Are you ready for Christmas? Right? Uh, you've probably been asked that a dozen times. And uh, of course, it, as you saw my family a moment ago, it takes spreadsheets and budgets and all sorts of things to get ready for Christmas in the Carn House. Um, but but we, we what, when we ask that question, what we're really getting to, right, is are the lights up? Is the you know is is the presents wrapped? Are the cards sent? Is is the figgy pudding you know cooling or heating or whatever you do with that? That's why we want to know: Are you ready for uh, all the kind of trappings and all the traditions of the typical American Christmas. You ever wonder where all these things come from? You know, these flowers, for instance, that we have decorated throughout our sanctuary. The lights, the candles that we light. Where, where do we get all these traditions that we enjoy so much? Well, I was thinking about that this week, and I discovered that uh, before 1950, for instance, there was no Frosty the Snowman. That was an invention by Gene Autry as he sang his song Frosty the Snowman in 1950, to follow up his hit song in 1949, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which of course was invented in 1939 to lure customers into the Montgomery Ward department store. You might be interested to know that the Christmas trees, you know, putting the tree in your living room didn't become popular until about the 1700s in Germany. And it didn't make its way to the English speaking worlds for some time. In fact, it was when uh, the Queen Victoria, the British Queen Victoria, married the German Prince Albert that he brought with him the German Christmas traditions, including putting a tree there in the living room in Buckingham Palace, I suppose. And so there it was, and it began to spread over England in the 1840s. And it wasn't until the 1870s that us Americans, began to put trees in our houses this time of year. In fact, it was in 1870, it was the first time, first year, that Christmas was actually recognized as a public holiday in America. It was in 1860 that uh, good old St. Nick was canonized by the illustrators of Harper's Weekly. It's in that illustration that we learn he comes from the North Pole. He's a bit overweight, And uh, he started keeping a list of nasty children, as well as nice ones. And then it was in 1828, you might be interested, probably you're not, but I am anyways, that Joel Poinsett, the American ambassador to Mexico, brought back with him these red-leafed plants down from Mexico, which of course now bear his name, Poinsettia. In 1822, the most famous American poem I think probably ever written, written by a university professor entitled A Visit from St. Nicholas, in which the first line read, you know, don't you, it was the night before Christmas. And it's in that poem that we learn, for instance, that Santa smokes a pipe, believe it or not, that he wears for clothing, that he has elves and a sack of gifts on his back, and it was there in 1822 we first discovered that he flies in a flying sleigh pulled by eight reindeer. It's interesting to note, I think, that Christmas Day, really the first Christmas Day under the United States Constitution in 1789, Congress was in session on Christmas Day. It was just another day, it was a work day, so they went to work. 12 years earlier on Christmas Day in 1777, General George Washington, as you know, led the American troops to attack the Haitians in New Jersey there on Christmas Day. Now, this wasn't some great military strategy we will catch them off guard while they're sipping eggnog, right? It was just another day. No one was, at least in America, celebrating Christmas the way we do in 1777. In fact, December 25th wasn't associated with Christ's birth until the 4th century. What's interesting, I think, the closer we get to the birth of Christ, the actual event in which we're celebrating, there's not much left of the Christmas traditions which we tend to enjoy. In fact, you read the Bible, Jesus never taught his disciples to commemorate his birth, interesting enough. That was never a focus of his. Certainly, he never taught them about snowmen and mistletoe. Right? Christians were far more interested in not when he was born, but, but who it was that was born on that Christmas day. Now, please understand, I'm, I'm no humbug. I love Christmas. Right? Ask my children. We go all out, and uh, we, will, we will, in fact, we'll have Christmas for days and days. We'll, we'll have a, a glorious time tomorrow. We'll drink our eggnog and get a roaring fire going, and, and uh, I'll snuggle up against with my wife as we watch our kids open presents and And just delight in in their joy and at the same time wonder who's going to clean up the mess, right? And we're going to have a great time as we do every year. But as we listen, I think, as we did tonight to the events of his birth, I want to remind you that something far more amazing happened 2,000 years ago. Far more amazing than gift exchanges and twinkling lights. In fact, you see it there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And on Matthew goes, the story of how he was born. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. We have a tradition in our home that on our children's birthday, we have a big feast in their honor, and uh, and, uh, their mother recounts their birth story. I don't know if, if anyone else does this. So all our children are reminded of their birth story. They're reminded of the, the sleepless nights and the, the earnest prayers. They're reminded that uh, they were a pain in their mother's back before they were even born, right? Um, of course, we, they're reminded of the joy and the tears and the cuddling and the celebration. Well, you, you look, you see what Matthew's doing. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's, it's his birth story. And, and he tells us the birth of whom. You see that there... Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. In fact, look how the book begins in verse 1. It says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you read Matthew 1 as we have as a church for the past couple Sundays, we've seen that, that uh, there in Matthew 1, he's named Jesus, which means he's a Savior. He's named Emmanuel, which means he's God. And it's here, there's a third name that we, that we come across, or a title at least, there in verse 18, that he is He's the Christ. In fact, you get to chapter 2 and verse 4, and we read that the Magi have come to worship the Christ. Or you go over to Luke's Gospel, and the angels declare to the shepherds that for unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. He's the Christ. Christ simply means anointed one. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah and Christ are the same word, Two different languages. It's the one who has been promised throughout Scripture to come and save and to rule over God's people. It's the promised one. It's the awaited one. It's the long uh, uh, sought for one. That's who Jesus is. He's the coming anointed one, the anointed kings. For the Jews would anoint their kings as a sign of God's blessing upon them. In fact, you notice how Matthew, in Matthew's account, how the angel speaks to Joseph. See that there in verse 20. He says, Joseph, son of David. right? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, and, and so forth. You notice he calls him Joseph, son of, son of David. And the reason the angel's doing this is because the promised Messiah, or the promised Christ, was to be a descendant of David. And we read this over and over again in the Old Testament. For instance, Jeremiah says, I will raise up to David a righteous branch, who will, uh, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just. And so... We come to the time of, of Jesus' birth, unfortunately, and this time it seems like the lineage of David is exhausted, it's at least invisible, and evidently this very common, poor carpenter man named Joseph happens to be a descendant of David, and he will, of course, adopt Jesus into his lineage, and we're reminded here, from the very beginning, that he's coming as the anointed king, he's coming as the Christ. Now the question is, does anybody recognize that? Does anybody realize who he truly is? So I want, for the rest of our time, I want you to turn to Matthew 16. There's this amazing conversation that Jesus has. It's is getting towards the end of his ministry. He's spent years now teaching. He's spent years healing. He's done all, all sorts of miracles. And finally, he, he comes to a point after spending all this time with his apostles, and he draws them to himself, and he asks them this question. It's a question I want to ask you this evening. You see there in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Right. What's the word on the street? Who do people think I am, Jesus says. You notice they give him three options. Verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So people think you're, you might be John the Baptist. He talked a lot about the kingdom of God. Certainly you do. He, he attracted a huge crowd. Certainly you are. Or maybe, maybe you're Elijah, who the Old Testament prophesied will be a forerunner for the Messiah, who will prepare the way for the coming Christ. Or maybe, maybe you're Jeremiah or, or, or Moses or one of the other prophets. You notice... Even at this point in Jesus' ministry, there's no agreement as to who he is. And yet, what they do agree on is that he's pretty amazing, right? Whoever he is, he's great. And so you can almost imagine the apostles answering, Lord, people are saying that you're one of the great ones. In other words, people are very, very impressed with you. And it kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? You know, people still, 2,000 years later, are impressed with Jesus. I mean, he, he, he's still well thought of. I mean, you're here tonight even. I, I assume out of some attachment to him. And some consider him, of course, to be a wise teacher to listen to or a, a virtuous example to follow. Even the Muslims consider him to be one of their prophets. I mean, you ask anybody, and they say, yeah, Jesus is one of the great ones. Certainly, he is an incredible man, and he is one of perhaps the best men ever to live. But what's interesting to me is that Jesus does not seem satisfied with being one of the great ones. For he presses them, doesn't he? As you see in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say I am? And that's what everybody else believes. But what do you believe? Right? Others are saying this. Some, some are saying that. But what do you think? You who have been following me all these years. Who do you think I am? Of course, they've seen him cure the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. They, they've watched him receive sinners and love enemies and embrace the unclean and comfort the weeping and welcome the lonely He's ministered to men and women and Jew and Gentile, old and young, powerful and possessed, centurion and servant. He's acted with great power across distance. He's defeated demons with Word. He's ruled the storms, walked on water, created bread. He's rebuked the proud, lifted up the humble, resisted temptation, kept the law, interpreted scripture, forgiven those who trust him. He's been blessed by angels, baptized by the prophet, anointed by the spirit, extolled by the father. They've listened to him pray, listened to him teach scripture, listened to him proclaim the good news of the kingdom of heaven, and they consider all of what they have seen and what they have heard and what they have known and suddenly for the first time a man voices this truth it becomes clear to them as you see peter speaking for all of them in verse 16 simon peter replied you are the christ the son of the living god you're the christ you're not just another religious leader you're not just another wise man You're not even just another prophet. You're the Messiah who has come to repair the brokenness in this world. You're just not a king. You're the king. You're the one who will come and put everything right. You are the Christ of God. You are the anointed, long-awaited deliverer. That's their answer. What's yours? How would you answer that question there if Jesus were to ask you, as he did in verse 15, who do you say that I am. What do you think? What do you think of Jesus? I, I found it interesting that uh, a recent study said 85% of Americans believe in Jesus. <laughs> I find that astonishing. I would have guessed like eight, maybe. 85% believe in Jesus. So that means you go out and, you know, with your affairs, you know, was that? Uh, 17 out of 20 people you bump into say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I wonder if the more important question is, not do you believe in Jesus, but who is the Jesus that you believe in? In fact, I wonder even in this room tonight, if we were to poll each person and say, listen, who, what do, you, who do you think Jesus is? We might come up with very similar answers as they did. We might have various different answers, and we may all conclude, though we're not quite sure who he is, he's one of the great ones. He's incredible, but we might not agree. But you see, it doesn't seem like that satisfies Jesus, does it? That's why he presses them. It's not enough that we simply believe in Jesus. It's not simply enough that we admire Jesus. You must believe in who Jesus is. He's the Christ. In fact, I would suggest to you that who you believe Jesus is will determine how you interact with him. For instance, if you think Jesus happens to be a good teacher, you may occasionally listen to what he says. If you think Jesus to be a virtuous example, you may at times follow his life. If you think him to be eminently wise, you may go to him for help when you are confused. But if you believe he's the Christ, if you think he's the Messiah... The anointed king, well, my friends, what do you do with a king? What do you do with a king? Do do you go to a king and say, okay, king, I need some advice? Do you go to a king and say, okay, king, let me follow your example? Do you go to a king and tell the king, okay, king, you're my servant. You should follow me around my days and bless me and take care of my affairs. What do you do with a king? You go and you bow before a king. You surrender to a king. You say a king to a king, I'll do whatever you ask, my Lord, for you are my king. The Bible calls that repentance. You turn over the rule of your life into the hands of him who now rules it. So you have to accept him for who he truly is. Of course Jesus is a good teacher. Of course he is eminently wise. Of course, he, of course he's a wonderful example. But he's more than that. He's the Christ. And you can't accept him as a good teacher or, or a paragon of wisdom unless you accept him as the Christ, as the anointed king. You, you either accept him as all or nothing. For instance, my name is Stephen Karn. And if you were to say, okay, come on in, Stephen, but stay out, Karn. Right? We don't want any part of Karn. We'll take Stephen. I don't know what to do because I'm Stephen Carn. That's who I am. I, I, I can't separate the Stephen from the Karn. You, if you won't have the Karn, you don't get the Stephen. What some people do is they say, come into my life as teacher, come into my life as example, or maybe even come into my life and forgive my sins, come into my life and answer my prayers, come into my life and solve my problems, fix my relationships, but don't be the first in my life. Don't Don't Say you're gonna rule my life. In other words, we say, Come in, Savior, stay out, Lord. Come in, helper, stay out, Messiah. And I'll tell you, it'll never work. It won't work. You either take him all or nothing. Who do you, who do you say that I am? He accepts one answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And if you believe that, your life will show it. There will be submission in your life to him. I, I mentioned that Christ means anointed one. And, and of course they anointed their kings, but there was another office they anointed. You know what, who else they anointed? They anointed the priest, didn't they? So he's just not the awaited king, but he's the priest who has come to make sacrifice for sins. Which is why as soon as they affirm, as, affirm as, him as Christ, look what he does in verse 21. They've now established, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. We read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And here it is, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. In other words, yes, I am the Christ. Therefore, I must die Therefore, I, I must be raised, why? So that your sins may be forgiven. So that my sins may be forgiven. So that our debt may be paid. Are you ready for Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Me too. But there's no better way than to embrace Jesus for who he truly is. As wonderful as the twinkling lights are, the gifts under the tree, as wonderful as the family is and the feasting. Have you received Jesus? Has he paid for your sin? Have you surrendered to him in faith as your Lord? Have you received him? To receive Jesus is kind of it's a lot like like getting married. Right before you were married, you, you were fond of someone, you longed for someone, you, you had intentions to be with someone, but there was a day of decision in which you, the, wh- wh- who were two became one flesh, united forever, you receive that person into your life. We have to do that with Christ. The Bible says we do that by faith. And I wonder if there are, there are some here tonight who God is speaking to their heart and saying, will you receive my son as your Lord? He's come to save you from your sins. He's come to forgive you from all you have done that you might be welcome into his family forevermore. It was on Christmas Day in 1739 that George Whitfield, the great evangelist, was out preaching on Christmas and said, Oh, how it will rejoice my heart to hear that someone this day has been born again. Then it will be Christmas indeed. It will be Christmas indeed. If God might bring you to faith, that you might bow before him as Lord. My Christian brothers and sisters, how are you bowing before your Lord, the Messiah? In what way is he your Lord? Do you find great joy knowing that you do not exist for him? Uh, Rather, he does not exist for you, but you exist for him. That you might follow him. Maybe he be your Lord tonight and tomorrow and every day forward. As you seek to do his will. For he has come to live for us and to die for us and to be raised for us. And it's even that meal that we have the great privilege to remember his death for us the death of the Christ, our Messiah. Our Father, we are thankful for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe he is the Christ, as your word reveals. We believe he is therefore our King. We believe he is therefore our sacrifice. And so, Father, we we rejoice this Christmas. The Messiah has come. The Messiah has solved all of our sin, has paid all of our debt, that we might be forgiven, that we might be yours. I pray that everyone under the sound of my voice knows Jesus as their Messiah, as their Christ. Father, if there are some here that do not, have not yet yielded to him in faith, will you not bring them to Jesus? For I know of no other Savior other than the one for whom we celebrate this Christmas. And now, Father, as we come to this Lord's Supper, we pray that you would work in our hearts as we remember the work of Jesus Christ long ago, that he would come to die for sinners like us, that we might be received by a holy and perfect God. He has paid our debt and conquered the grave for us. And it's that great work that we celebrate tonight. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.